Bat Force Radio. Bat Force Radio is rated M for mature. Or should that be immature? Hey guys, Dustin Wynn. Hey, this is Scott Snyder. This is Paul Dini. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio. You're listening to Bat Force Radio. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. And you're listening to Bat Force Radio, so stay tuned. Welcome back to Bat Force Radio, the Batman and DC podcast with no limits. A quick look at today's roundtable. We've got Bat Force Tom in California. Hey. And Dunk in New York. What up? And I'm Robin Cross in Canada. And today's guest is not only a massively successful musician as the drummer in one of the biggest metal bands of the 90s and 2000s with System of a Down, but also the founder of what could easily be called the coolest comic shops around with Torpedo Comics. Welcome to the show, Mr. John Dolmayan. What's up, guys? Also, yeah. I'm Canadian. I don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all, right. all the way up here in Canada, eh? Hey. <laughs> yeah, so, which unfortunately means uh, I, I haven't had a chance to visit the shops yet, but uh, I did hit your booth last year in San Diego, and I got to talk to you for a couple of minutes. Yeah, we try to do something a little bit different with the booths as well. Um, a lot of a lot of my friends in the industry are kind of kind of just still stuck in what they've been doing for the last you know 15, 20 years with their setups. We try to do something that's a little more interesting, and um, our hope is to bring in you know people that are into like higher end coin collecting and other hobbies that you know where you get you know millions of dollars more than you do for comic books for a particular coin to get some of that money and some of those buyers into this industry. Uh, so we try to elevate what we do and, and we hope to inspire other dealers and shops alike to do the same. You know, I've always had an open door policy to anybody that wanted suggestions or if they needed help with display building and stuff like that. We've got companies that we use that are, that are very good at it and are quite affordable compared to what you would think. So it's just about improving our industry, trying to trying to do different things, try to bring more attention to it, capitalize on some of the um, attention you're getting through all these movies for both Marvel and DC, and, and uh, even outside of Marvel and DC, you're getting movies for comic book companies. So just try to capitalize on that and capture as much of an audience as we can. And and you have a ton of experience and uh, from their knowledge in selling, uh, like you were selling at conventions in the days pre-system of a down. People might not even know that. Uh, could you take us through what your origin story is in comic books, wh- where you got into comics and, and how far back you go? Sure. I want to say I probably go back further than 12, but 12 is when it became prominent in my life. Um, I used to hang out with a friend of mine every weekend we would take our $5 allowance and go to uh, see movies. And, we, you know, we'd sneak out of movies and sneak into other ones. But we'd seen all the movies that were out so many times. 
that he said, Lee, why don't, instead of going to the movies, why don't we go to a comic book store that I go to? And I said, what's a comic book store? Because I had seen, you know, comic books at newsstands occasionally or at 7-Eleven or something like that. But I didn't know there were uh, dedicated stores for them. And he took me into this store called Passport Comics on Victory Boulevard in uh, North Hollywood, California. And it was just like that jaw-dropping, eye-opening moment. I walked in and I was hooked immediately. Uh, comics on the wall, there were comics in bins. He, he had uh, all the new issues pinned up on in this like massive board that spanned like probably 500 square feet on the right side of the building. And on the left, it was just stacks of uh, cinder blocks and wood. You know, <laughs> um, I, I think at one point there was an earthquake and the whole thing fell down. But, oh. <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of a chintzy setup, but it was just like back issues stacked up, no boards, all in bags. And, uh, you know, I had my five bucks and I went to the 25 cent bins and I pulled out five bucks worth of books. And that was it. That was the beginning of it for me. And very quickly, within a couple of months, I had several long boxes of comics. I had a subscription pull list and, um, and that was it. And venture started from there. Then later on, you know, you, at a certain point, you can't really get an allowance. You, you get a job as a young adult. And I started working around 14 years old. And uh, started paying for my own comic books, living with my parents still at that time. But around 18, it got tougher because then I had, you know, I purchased a car, although it was a really crappy one. And it always needed repairs, you know, gas, insurance. I was paying my own phone bill, living in my parents' garage at that point, so I didn't have rent. But uh, it was getting tougher to buy my new issues. And I made the decision to sell my older issues to pay for my comic book habit to continue reading. And back then there was something called the Recycler, which is pretty much the same as like um, Craigslist or something like that, but it was an actual newspaper that came out and they allowed you to do two or three free ads a week. So I started putting ads in the Recycler and I was selling comics. And uh, lo and behold, people would show up at my garage and it was basically like a little mini comic book store for my 20 or 30 long boxes. And they would buy some books. And I had acquired some pretty cool books at that time. Like um, my oldest X-Men book was number three. I had an FF5. You know, some good stuff. Still good stuff today. And uh, then I started doing conventions. And, and pretty much, like, even though I had multiple jobs that I almost always got fired from. <laughs> I worked at Pepsi. I worked at UPS. I worked at Costco. I worked at Robinson's May Company. I got fired from all those jobs, by the way. Um, <laughs> And then I had other jobs too, but um, I consistently sold comics during all that time and it became more and more of my living. And then I just said, okay, I'm better at this than I am working for somebody else. So let me just do this full time. And I got a, I got a booth at a place called Frank and Sons, Hell yeah. which uh, if you're a collector in Southern California, you're probably aware of it. Great dealers and met some great friends there. They're still friends today. And that was the beginning of it. And then, a couple of years later, system got signed, and and I had to give up all the comic stuff. But what I would do is, uh, even though I wasn't selling anymore, I just bought stuff while I was on the road. A lot of downtime. So we'd be in a, in a small town somewhere in the Midwest, and I'd pull out the yellow pages and get into a taxi and just go to comic book shops during the day. And then wow. play our show at night. You know, We were fortunate back then because... <clears throat> Since we weren't that big, we were we were able to play a lot more markets that are smaller. 
Now it's mm. not feasible. You have to play. If you're going to play in Illinois, you're going to play in Chicago. You know, uh, if you're going to play in Michigan, you're going to play in Detroit. So you don't get to go to the mom and pop uh, comic book shops as well as like bookstores and, you know, thrift shops and all that stuff that I was able to do initially. Um, now they're yeah. doing that stuff to call American Pickers or whatever they're called. That show that goes to like small towns. Well, that's that was us back then, yeah. or me. And, uh, you know, I buy great books and sometimes I find somebody that had a collection and buy them. <clears throat> the bottom of the bus had just comic boxes, you know, that I stored in the bottom of the bus. And the rest of the band members uh, had to put their stuff inside somewhere. <laughs> but they were pretty patient with it. And then, uh, you know, as... As that progressed, I was back to the comic scene. When I when I got back to LA, and we had time off. I would go to the Shrine and sell the Shrine. Bruce Schwartz put on a great show, which is uh, I think it still exists. I haven't I haven't been around that much in LA to to figure that out. But so once a month we'd set up at the Shrine, and then I'd see great dealers like John Verzel or Mike Carbonaro from New York and Harley from uh, Michigan and became friends with these guys, uh, got to know them, a couple of curmudgeons like Jamie Graham, my friend, mm-hmm. who I play poker with uh, occasionally and take all his money. <laughs> and, you know, it just kind of developed, and, and and I avoided for a long time doing a brick-and-mortar store because everybody told me how difficult it is and what a challenge it is to sell comics and how the comic industry is imploding and it's not even going to be around much longer. And I, You know, all the usual stuff you hear the naysayers say, and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to give it a shot, and we're going to do it completely differently than everybody else. We're going to go back-issue-centric. Back issue we're going to do themes. And, uh, you know, I invested some money into it, and here you have it. You know, now we have yeah. Torpedo Comics. We have two locations. I don't know how many more locations I'll have because I'm more interested in really um, making our primary store in Las Vegas kind of the amoeba uh, music of the comic book world and um, making it – as big as possible. I have intentions of building out like an 8,000 square foot store. Jesus Christ. Story, you know, 25, 30 foot ceilings so we can hang some cool stuff off the ceilings and just making it something where not only the 12 year old kid can come in and be wowed, but also the 40 year old kid that's in all of us can come in and, and just have that same feeling and, uh, and just be interested in comics and collecting and the whole deal. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. Um, it's such a. I mean, you've kind of made it big in two areas that are almost impossible to do it in. Um, and you've been a success at both of them. It's funny when I remember at this show in San Diego a while back, I was talking to one of your guys. He's wearing a, a torpedo shirt, and uh, I can't remember his name, but you know, we were just talking about the shop. And at that time, I think you hadn't yet expanded to um, Orange County. I know you didn't yet, and you were still at your old Vegas location. So we were talking about that. And I was like, man, like, like I was like, he, this the shop is getting so big, it's crazy. And he goes, yeah, man, we started at Frankenstein's, and he started telling me the Frankenstein story. And I was like, oh. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, yeah, and then one day someone's like, yeah, man, John's band is playing. And we were like, oh, okay, that's cool. But then they were like, I guess you guys were opening for I can't remember the thrash band, but you were opening for a thrash Slayer? band. Who was it? Was it Slayer? Our first tour, yeah. Holy shit, I'm, it might have been Slayer, because I remember him saying, he's like, oh, John's band's playing, that's cool. And someone's like, yeah, they're opening for, fucking opening for Slayer? Hell yeah, I'll go. And it's like, yeah. it's, it's just that funny. That's like it's Carl, like, by the way. The <laughs> is, he, is, he, is he a big guy with curly hair? No. Well, um, 
curly hair. Is he, does he have a, a goatee? Was he Filipino? Some. No, but he. Oh man, you know what, man? He, he's Pacific Islander. He just doesn't look like it. Maybe he he's been anyway, with you Carl, since. Carl's a good guy. Yeah, he's been with you since those days. I know that. Yeah. But it, he was telling me it was the funny funny story about how like you know oh bands uh, John's bands playing. He's like oh okay, and then it's like they're opening for Slayer. And he's like oh, oh I'll go. And so it's just inc- it's crazy like it really seems that you have this thing going, this you know this passion going at Frank and Sons. There's a lot of people who listen to us that are, all of us are very familiar with Frank and Sons. Um, passionate dudes and you had this one world going on and then you were almost like sidetracked by this completely different world that is I mean you can get lost in that world with how how intricate how big how little you can be Um, you made it big there and then you kind of circled your way back to your original passion and now you're turning that into what it is now with torpedo and we were talking off air you have to have at this point like the the most prestigious collection for sale at a comic shop, right? I don't know um, for sure, but we certainly have, you know, a million dollars or so in the vault at any time. Right. Um, just That's just that one room. You know, yeah. That like our bin books. By the way, how's the lighting for me? Is it okay? I don't, I can't see your, is your video on? Oh, is this just radio? I mean, we have, if you want to do video. Oh, so the video doesn't matter. It's all good. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 So if, yeah, if you're in your underwear, me? we have no Put idea. Put some clothes on, John. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was jerking off, but whatever. Uh, I mean, so was I, but you asked permission first. We're in the COVID no world. No. you see me on this? Uh, let me see. There should be we're, at the bottom. We're, Are you on? We're, we're only oh, going go. to release it oh, there in you uh, go. on audio form anyway. I, I thought, I thought you were recording video this whole time, but it's all good. We are. We are, but it's up to you whether you want to show your face or not. Everyone knows what you kind of look like at this point. But yeah, so what I was saying is... um. I also have to apologize, John. I was very rude to you, okay? Um, sure. I was very rude to you. Yeah, a couple of years back, um, I won tickets from K-Rock to go see System at, uh, at the Forum. It was like Acoustic Christmas, I think. And you guys oh, okay. were headlining. You were, you were headlining the show. And, um, yeah, our stage didn't work. I remember our that. stage got stuck. That was very funny. Yeah, um, so that happened. But that's, I mean, that was just one of a few memorable things that night. Um what they they provide it was like open open bar for like this backstage area for the concert winners i guess okay. and i had i had a few i'm not gonna lie to you All and right. um and so so i guess you know I, I had to go to the bathroom you had you guys hadn't gone on stage yet you know it was a big bill so it's probably like three hours before you go on stage and um i had to take a piss huge line i'm not waiting in that line so i go back to the backstage area where they had let us in to begin with and then this lady was like, oh, you can't go that way. And I was like, no, 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 I, I can't remember the lie I told her. She bought it. So I get into this elevator. I go upstairs. I find a bathroom, take a leak, come back downstairs. And as I open the elevator door, it's you, who I assume would be your wife, Jim Lee, Jim Lee's wife. Looks like you guys were like holding bags. Like you just had like a gift exchange because it was like Christmas time, you know. Mm. And so you're in the elevator. And so like, you know, I'm buzzed. I see you. I see Jim. And, like, you look at me kind of like, oh, shit, like, this drunken fan just, like, stumbled upon me backstage. <laughs> and I blow right past you, like, completely ignore you. I go straight to Jim. <laughs> and I go, and so I, like, turn my back to you even now that I remember it. Like, I have my back to you. I'm like, Jim, they just announced Dark Knight 3. Is Frank Miller going to write it? Who's going to draw it? Are you going to draw it? Who's doing the coverage? How are you going to do that? And I just, like, just, just Dark Knight 3, Frank Miller, Batman, blah, blah, blah. 
And he was so nice. Like, he was so nice. Jim's the nicest guy on the planet, bro. Oh, he's so nice. So nice. And he stopped what he was doing with you guys completely. You're in an elevator, and this drunk asshole is stopping you guys at your show that you're playing. And he's he's so nice in having this conversation with me. You got to tell you. And he's like, he couldn't tell me everything, obviously. But he's like, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you this. He's like, it's going to be cool. Don't worry about that. It's going to be cool. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And then I'm like, can I get a picture with you? And he's like, yeah, sure. It's like he turns around, gives his bag to his wife. And you're looking at us just like. And so, <laughs> he, so I get a picture with Jim. And then at this point, he start, he keeps talking to me. He's like, oh, he goes, be on the lookout for this. We got this coming out. And then you're like, Jim, we got to go. Jim, we got to go. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta get on stage. Yeah, we're, we're in an <laughs> elevator. Like you guys were, you guys were in an elevator, and you're literally holding the elevator for this jackass talking to Jim Lee. And so I just remember that was the funniest thing because I get out of the elevator and I was like, "Holy shit!" Like I didn't even say hi to the guy whose show this is in the first place. Like well, I'm totally geeking out. It was a K Rock show. It wasn't really our show. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, you're headlining it, way, though. You know. Either way, you you may have expected to see me there, but you didn't expect to see Jim. And uh, and well, I totally I did. get it. Having I did that though. One on one time with Jim is important. Yeah, and that, so another another full disclosure, I did know he was going to be there because oh, he did. posted on yeah he posted on social media that he was going to be there that night. So I swear to God, I told my wife like I'm going to fucking find him there because I have to ask about <laughs> Dark Knight Three because they had literally just announced it like a couple of days before. Well, you know so, what, man, your your tenacity paid off. You found him. You found me. I know. You found our wives. And, yeah, and he broke the stage to make sure that he would get his opportunity. Oh, I'm sorry, my name is Yeah. Wow, well, uh, Popeyes, huh? Yeah. I'm glad that diet's going well. <laughs> oh, you're at work right now. Well, define work. Define work. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's I don't think anybody who works for me thinks they're at work. Are you at work? I'm having fun. You're having fun. You hear that? Yeah, Jim's oh, great. So- the story of how I met Jim is kind of interesting too. And it goes back to me being a comic book dealer slash uh, musician and how those worlds collide sometimes. Uh, there used to be something called WonderCon in Oakland. Before San Diego Comic-Con bought WonderCon, it used to be in Oakland in, um, in an area with no restaurants, so it was tough to eat there. But it was in a hotel and we were set up and Jim was the guest. So it was Jim, Ollie Garza, Libra Mejo and Carlos Deanda, and they were kind of set up doing a signing. It was like basically a Wildstorm section, right? And I, being a big uh, Jim, Lee, Jim Lee fan, I, w- I always used to take CDs with me wherever I went. Sure, sure, you gonna get in here? No, you can get in here. You sure? Yeah, I'm just doing an interview. Yeah, tell him it's fine. <laughs> he wants to hear the Jim Lee story. You take you take precedence. That's for my Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Oh shit, you gonna make that kind of noise? <laughs> Asshole. Gonna make us hungry. <laughs> right. Anyway, so uh so anyway. <laughs> right, don't let us bother you. <laughs> so I, I I had a bunch of CDs, you know, the first two I think were out at that time. This must have been like right around two thousand one, early two thousand one. And I went and I found uh, the line for Jim, it was a mile long, but of course I had a booth, so I couldn't really stay there that long. So I just went to the front of the line. I said, Jim, I'm a tremendous fan. I want to thank you for um, your art and for everything you've done. And I want to give you this gift. And I gave him the two CDs 
And I said, it's nice to meet you. And then I went back to my, he said something smart ass, which I didn't even, I didn't even catch at the time. Cause I told him the band name. I go, I'm John. I'm the drummer for system of a down. And you know, I have this for you. And then he was like, what, what symptoms of a down? You know, <laughs> he was being a smart ass, but I didn't know it. So after I left, he used my CD as a ruler to like draw something, you know, for a fan. <laughs> Cause I think he just thought it was, you know, some, he probably gets 50 CDs every, or back then he probably did from fans. Oh, this is my band. Check it out. This is my artwork, whatever. Right. And I don't think he looked at the back and it said, you know, Sony music. So it was like legit, right? Like this is something that was put out and he had no idea, but the other three guys were system fans. So I guess after I, I after I left, they were like, oh, that's like, that, that's a drummer for system, blah, blah, blah. And they, they explained to Jim who system was. And then, you know, I was back at my booth just kind of hanging out with my employee. And then lo and behold, here comes Jim and, and the group, you know, like a, like a bunch of little ducklings behind him. They were all <laughs> And he came up and he thanked me for the CDs and um, gave me like an art print. And the other guys gave me some prints as well. And I was like, wow, that's so nice of you guys. And then we were just chatted for a few seconds. And, um, and he's like, well, you know, we're going to go celebrate uh this is before he was married to Carla, but she was there as well. And he said, we're going to go celebrate Carla's birthday. And I was like, um, and he goes, do you want to come? Wow. Like, do I wow. want to come and hang out with Jim? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll come. So you know, I got my crew. We went, we met him. We had a great time. And we've been friends ever since. He, uh, he came to Vegas a couple months later. And we hung out in Vegas. And um, we just really developed a very strong friendship. And it was just out of that you know, kind of chance meeting of me being in yeah. a convention and, you know, who knows if we would ever have met otherwise. And he's turned out to be, if not my best friend, one of my you know, closest friends in the world. And I was his best man. He's, he's my best man as well at my wedding. So, you know, it just developed into this uh, love affair that we have. <laughs> I love yeah. him death. I think he's one of the best guys on the planet yeah. and a tireless worker. I can't say enough good stuff about Jim. You know, um, you guys know how he is. You you know firsthand because when you met him, that's who he is. Yeah. So it wasn't like after you left, he was like, oh, who was that asshole? <laughs> no. And I said that, yeah. but he didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it really it really showed because, um, you know, he he really did. T- I mean, he really took the time to really be a good guy, like answer the questions I had. And, you know, I think he he knew where he was. Like he knew he was at your your event. But he was so nice to like talk to a fan that kind of stumbled in, and that's just um, how he is. That's yeah. just who he is. And you know, I don't think he could be different. It's it's a it's kind of like I think sometimes in, I mean you, I you can't say it for everybody because you know getting to know musicians sometimes when they get really big some of them can be assholes some of them are cool but I feel like in comics like there's a lot of creators big names they started out because they were kids who loved it and yeah. they were always that fan they were always that kid that was you know, going up to their fame, their favorite creator or their, you know, looking up to somebody. So I feel like there's that camaraderie with a lot of the creators who like, you know, when they're talking to fans, it's almost as if like it's just two fans talking because they've been in the same place as you were before. And that's why they're where they're at now. Especially uh, if you could talk to them about something that they're not working on. All right. Like mm-hmm. just get into the fandom of it with them because yeah. they're just, you know, for the most part, most of the um, artists and writers in this business are just what you just said, fans who came into it, worked their way up, uh, fantasized about getting into comics, and then did it, you know? Yeah. 
So you can definitely talk to them about, especially me being closer to their age. You guys are younger, but I'm closer to the age of uh, most of the guys that I'm interacting with. So we could, we could talk in detail about the comics that were coming out in the early 80s when we were all just fans. You know, yeah. I was going to the comic book store and they were going to the comic book store. Yeah. And I, and I would say um, if I gave any advice to anybody, you know, there's, there's a way of approaching somebody that's famous, right? You can completely go up to them and geek out, and that's appreciated, you know? But there's a, there's a level of your guard being up for those type of fans because you don't know to what level they're going to geek out. They, I've had people burst into tears and get hysterical. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm looking behind, you know, like, for me, you know, like, is, this me? is Jim behind me again? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's people that come up to you and they just tell you, you know, how something you've done artistically has changed their lives, you know, uh, saved yeah. their lives in some cases, especially with music. People really, I mean, they put a lot of, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. Passion? You're no help. Um, <laughs> they, they invest a lot of. Their they time. invest a lot into the music. It's not their time. Mm-hmm. It's their emotion or well-being. Like passion. The, when they when they're listening to yeah, passion as well. When they're listening to your music, they relate to you, mm-hmm. like even though they don't know you through your music. So they feel like they have a relationship with you that you're not quite aware of, right? Because as the artist, you're producing it. But you're not thinking about all that stuff. You're just thinking about trying to make it as good as possible, yeah. you know, to represent who you are. And then after after you put it out there, that's it, right? Like, you have very little to do with it at that point. It's the world's at that point, you know? Yeah. And I guess it's the same in some ways in comics, you know, like people feel like they know the artist or writer because of what they write or what they, what they draw or paint, you know? And the reality is you don't know them, but you feel this kinship with them. So when you approach somebody, that whole geek out thing is great. You know, we appreciate it. And, you know, um, very rarely have I had a bad day bad enough to not uh, take a request to sign something or take a picture with a fan. But uh, the other side of it is when somebody comes up to you and talks to you about something that you have in common, which is a love for something, right? Like uh, I've talked in interviews before about the bands I like. So sometimes fans will take that different approach and come and say, hey, um, I really want to talk to you about the who it seems to mean a lot to you. You know, Keith Moon being one of the greatest and most irreverent drummers in history. I feel the same way about him, you know, like, uh, et cetera. Right. And then that's like more of a personal conversation where mm-hmm. you're interacting with a person with their guard down as opposed to with their guard up. And I would say the same goes for comics. You know, you go and talk to Jim, and say, oh, my God, you're the best artist in the world, and this, that. And he's heard that a million times before. And he's also smart enough to realize that that's not true, right? Like, he's a great artist, but there is no best artist in the world. There's no such thing. There's no best drummer or best this or best that. It's just personal choices that you make. Um, so he's going to take that with a grain of salt. But if you go up to Jim and say, hey, man, you grew, you grew up liking comics, right? Like, what did you think of Watchmen when it came out originally? Or what did you think of... Uh, you know, uh, the first time you read an Avengers book or whatever the case may be, or how did Batman affect you the first time you were introduced to Batman? So that's more of a personal relationship you're having for that one or two minutes that you're having that conversation. If the person has time, of course, if they're not, you also have to be cognizant as a fan 
that although you might have time for that interaction, you don't know. If you've seen Jim at a, at a comic convention, I've seen his schedule. I think there's like eight seconds for him to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Like the rest of the time is do this, do that. Apparel, yeah, he's, signs, he's, 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 he's not allowed to shake after he goes to the bathroom. He just has to zip up and go. No shaking necessary, Richard. Yeah. He's under like a horse, so it goes right <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I, I would just uh, counsel anybody that's going up to somebody. It's always appreciated, even if they're in a bad mood. Trust me, it's nice that somebody cares enough to come say hello to you. And, um, you know, do it. But, like, uh, if you're a fan and you just want a picture, make it quick, take your picture, and then move on. That would be my yeah. recommendation. While we're on the topic of your insight, I wanted to to pick your brain about this. So I read a quote from you before that uh, you took pleasure in proving people wrong when they tell you 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 can't do something. So you have achieved success in two things that most parents would tell their kids is not a good idea. Don't waste your money on comic books and you're not going to be a rock star. Uh, you're a great example of people aspiring to do things that they're told they can't. Uh, what would be your advice to people that are beginning on whatever their path is and, and are being told that that they can't do it? All right. So there's two reasons people tell you you can't achieve something. One is because they're afraid that you're going to fail and you're not going to have anything to back it up and you're going to have a horrible life. Those people are usually related to you. The second is because they're afraid to put everything at risk and take the chance and take that leap and they don't want anybody else to do it because that way you guys can all be losers together you get what <laughs> i'm saying so yep. be careful where you're getting advice from now for me it was like fuel right like it was jet fuel for me when my parents told me you're not going to make it in music go to school do that whatever get a job you know they pleaded with me to do something that was more of a normal vocation and part of it was because my dad was a musician you know, my dad played saxophone and he, he played the nightclubs and all that stuff and tried to raise a family with that while he cut hair. And he knew just how difficult it was. He knew the pitfalls. And uh, and he and in the old school, if you weren't the singer, especially in Armenian um, bands and, um, you know, more ethnic, if you go around the world, like even if you go to Armenia today, the singer of my band is looked at differently than the rest of us, even though we're equally responsible for system success. They just don't look at it that way. They almost have like a wedding singer mindset towards that stuff, you know, where the wedding singer is the band. And I mean, he's the, he or she is the person that's a focal point, And then the rest of it is just a backup band. That just doesn't happen to be the case in a real band, like, especially like system where you have four people that are, that are each talented in different ways and bring something unique to the table and are equally responsible for the, for the success of the band. Um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna try to achieve something in life, let's say you want to be an anchor, or an artist, or a writer, whatever it is you want to be, if you're not prepared to fail at the utmost level, then you probably shouldn't take the the road in the first place. Because you have to say to yourself, um, I'm going to leave myself really no other options. I'm going to succeed. Or I'm going to die trying. And what happens is, I had plenty of friends that I was in bands with. You know, like uh, from from 15 and up, I was in bands. They either got married and uh, or had kids or got a good job, and you know the music became secondary. 
then the music never became secondary for me. It was always the first and only thing that I was focused on. So I remember when I worked at Pepsi, and it, and it sucked working at Pepsi because they worked me to death because I was such a, I was actually a really good employee. You know, I'd get up at three in the morning, and I'd get off work at five or six at night. Well, you know, more often than not, I went to um, a gig that my band had at the time in my Pepsi uniform and did sound check. And then I would go home, change, and come back and play, hang out with my friends for a few hours, try to sleep for three, four hours, and then go back to work. You know, but um, of course I got fired from that job. <laughs> that was because I couldn't maintain that level of work that they had me under. And in all honesty, after I did get fired, they had to hire two people to do my job. So I knew that they were taking advantage of me at the time. I just didn't realize it because I was young. Um, looking back, I know they were. But irrespective of that, it enabled me to buy drumsticks, drum heads, my kick pedal when it broke. You know, these little jobs that I had, even though I got fired from them all, um, enabled me to survive and keep pushing forward. I will tell you that when I was around 24, I was having lunch with a friend and I was just sitting there and I was like, man, all my heroes, they were already into their like third album by the time they were 24, 25. Because I was looking at the 60s and 70s when bands were getting signed when they were 17, 18 years old. You know, and like by, by their mid-20s, some of their careers were over. You know? And I was like, man, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's going to happen, but I know I've got it. I, was, I know I was meant for this. And you start doubting yourself. And, and um, but I doubted myself, but I kept the, the, the moral of the story is no matter how much doubt I had, self-doubt, I kept moving forward with it until I was successful. You know, and that, that took getting in the system. The system would have been successful whether I was in the band or not. But I think they, um, I think they would have achieved less without me. You know, because of my role in the band that most people will never know anything about because it's all kind of uh, behind the doors. Keeping, keeping stuff together. Get the guy that gets up at 7 a.m. to go do the interview at the radio station when nobody else wants to. You know, all that stuff, it's all just a bunch of dominoes, right? Like you know, one leads to another, and then eventually you get to where you are now if you have the songs, which we did. As far as the comic book's concerned, you know, I got home and the comic books were on the, uh, on the trash pile outside. You know, my six or eight long boxes that I first started collecting. And luckily, I ditched school to go watch Robotech Otherwise, the trash guy came right around the time I got out of school. Oh, so man. I was able to catch the comic, take the comic back inside, Damn. and then like argue with my mother about why you can't throw away my stuff. You know, I mean, everybody has that story of the mom throwing away their stuff. But again, <laughs> with the comics, yep. what are you wasting your time for? It's a waste of money. These are stupid. You know, uh, let's just give them away. Why are you trying to? Because when I first started to sell comics, I was losing money going to conventions. And I was getting money from my dad just to be able to even go to set up at a convention. And I remember one convention where I was driving there in the morning and I had a beat up uh, 86 Beretta or 87 Beretta, Chevy Beretta. And I used to fit like 12 long boxes in the car. And uh, I, I had those um, closet organizers that I would use from all these stands, which um, alarmingly, a lot of dealers still use. I'm like, dude, you can't come up with something better. You know, but whatever. So, and I would put them in the car and six footers and go set up my booth, if you want to call it that. And, you know, I was doing conventions that were basically like card conventions, but I was trying to sell comics. And I would lose money. And then that one morning I got a ticket 
on the way there, and the ticket was like 200 bucks. And I went there, and the booth cost me 30 and I only made $15. <laughs> Fuck. So Man. I go home, and my dad's like, how'd it go? And, and I told him, he's like, what are you wasting your time for? But as much as they were negative about it, they still supported me in my ventures, right? Mm. Like They knew in their, in their hearts, they knew that the two things that I was concentrating on were exactly what you shouldn't concentrate on. But I give them credit. They would complain a lot and they would try to give me advice a lot, but they didn't stop me from doing it, mm. you know, and they were supportive in that way. So you do need some support, but if you're going to persevere, you got to work at it. I used to practice six, seven hours a day. I played with bands and go play live gigs in front of my girlfriend and a bartender, you know, I'm setting up all that equipment and everything. I got fired from Pepsi because you were walking around drumming on cans. I was doing that too. <laughs> people said but um you know if you're going to be successful in anything if you don't have that inner will to fight for something it's not going to happen for you and if you you should be able to be honest about that with yourself you look in the mirror and you see who am i am i somebody that will never take no for an answer and keep persisting no matter how many times the door shut on my face if you're not that person don't bother because the likelihood of making it in music to the level of system of a down is literally one in a billion. You know, literally. The likelihood of making it uh, to this level in a comic book company, you have a better chance. But you better work your ass off and you better make sure you're surrounded by idea people. And uh, you better have ideas yourself that are innovative to set you apart from everybody else. Because at the end of the day, we all get the same books from Diamond. Or what's the other? Luna? Luna. Or whoever you get your books from these days. But how do you present them? You know, what's your customer relationships? What are your customer relationships? Um, you know, what do you, what's your focal point at your store? Do you love what you do? Or are you just doing it because that's what you got stuck with? If you there, By the way, there's plenty of people in comics that get into it for the right reasons. It's a tough way to make money. You know, you've got to guess what people are going to want in three months. Yeah. That's not fun for yeah. retailers. Um, the the big two don't make it easy on retailers. You know, they get in our way a lot. You know, they make things difficult. The distribution channels are, are not perfect. There's a lot against, uh, see, against, that's the way Canadians say. Mm-hmm. There's a lot against uh, a retailer, top book retailer. But with that being said, there's also a lot of money to be made. If you do it right, you know, so, you know, we do signings, we have a lot of exclusives that we do. We have mystery boxes. Your VIP. Um, VIP. What's that? Your VIPs. We have VIP program. I've never seen anybody else do a lot of things we do. No. um, Nobody else has that. Huh? Nobody else has that. that You offer dinners with fucking Frank Miller, man. I don't think anyone else can do that. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people won't have that opportunity. And I got to tell you that the artists appreciate it, too. You know, they're sitting there. Again, it's that thing where when you're going to their booth at a convention or their table to go get a signature, they're there for that. They have a certain wall up, and you're going to get a certain experience. But once you go to lunch, it's a different experience. They're yeah. more relaxed. They're not on guard. The people aren't nervous because they've done it before. All my VIPs, they get, um, you know, we have a gold VIP. We limit it to how many people can come. So it's the same people every time. So one time they met Jim Lee. Next time that they might 
meet Liefeld. The next time it might be McFarland if we could ever come get him to come to the store. You know, um, Art Adams. And these are just normal people at the end of the day having lunch at my favorite Mexican restaurant in Vegas. You know, and um, and the fans get to have conversations with them and interact with them. And sometimes it's really just being a fly on the wall and listening to the conversations I have with them. They've gone to some weird places. You know, they've gone <laughs> to some serious places, stuff we don't want anybody else hearing. And also some really interesting places about their history. And they're and they're open and frank in a way that they won't be in an interview process, you know? Yeah. Like we're doing an interview here. I'm gonna speak my mind to you, but it's gonna be different than what I would say if I was sitting in a car with my friend or my wife. You're getting a little bit of that experience when we have these dinners. And um and not everything is to make money either. I don't make money on that stuff because I pay for every single one of those dinners. You know, so when you factor in the amount of free autographs they get, the gold membership's five hundred bucks. And that might seem a lot to somebody for a year. But you get three free autographs from every single guest that comes in minimum. Sometimes it's more, you know. Um, you get the dinner. You get first um, first come services. There's other events that we have that you're exclusive for. Um, any any special books or anything else we have, you're first in line for them. So there's a lot of benefit to it. But if you just people would pay 500 just to have lunch. People do yep. pay 500 just to have lunch because I know certain people that have seen what we do have also started doing these things, you know, mm -hmm. so you get a lot for what you pay for. And, and again, I would, I would say that not everything is about making money. So if you can do things that, that, um, encourage fandom and loyalty, you're going to get loyalty from a lot of these people. Initially, we, we used to just do it. Um, we did have to make some changes to what we did before we had the vip program we just made it free for anybody to come and you know bring books and get them signed and we realized like hey we're, we're putting up all the money to bring the guests we're paying for their hotels their flights the car service some some of them charge fees to be there we're paying for all this and there's all you know all these other comic book stores they're selling product in relation to that guest and then you're getting it signed for free what do we get out of it we're not getting your loyalty as a customer. We're not selling your product. We're providing all the service for you. So we decided, hey, if you're a Torpedo VIP and you're a person that buys from our store, you're going to get first service. And if you're not, then you're going to have to pay for the uh, autographs, just like you would anywhere else, you know, because we have to make our money back again. So we did have to make some adjustments. And some people were butthurt about that. And I was like, well, what money are you putting in my pocket at the end of the day? I got to pay my employees. Isn't that badass? <laughs> this is one of our covers for uh, Detective 1027. Oh, that's the wow. the uh, Tony Daniel. That's right. How sick is this? Wow. Is he, so, how what's uh how did you get your hands on the original there? You bought it? I bought all the originals. All the originals Ooh, for those yeah. 27 yeah. variants. Yeah. You're ridiculous. Yeah. You're ridiculous. <laughs> well, I, can't Went have, in. I can't have somebody else have the cover to my variant. I guess That's you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be cool. So yeah, I'll Good question. Well, yeah. Can, can you, you were saying about, um, and we got a little sidetracked there. You, you're making some great points there about, um, God damn it, with your comic book fucking collection. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Distracting me. <laughs> no, but you're saying, yeah, the, the rewards programs, the VIP stuff that you're offering to fans. Um, you got us a little sidetracked because you can't just show us original art like that and then just put it away. So going with that, I know, well, obviously 27 at least, and if not more.
but so kind of kind of in line with that um you've gotten to a place where you have this perspective of the comic industry you've been able to do things your way make it work for you you know you're obviously doing well um what did you do you think do you think like your time in a touring because the music industry is a is a fickle fucking business you know so do you think that you learned anything kind of like either by as an artist getting stepped on um the business side of it do you think that you learned a lot from that industry and brought it over to the comic stuff because i mean i wouldn't say i learned a lot i don't think the two are interchangeable and you're kind of treated as a veal when you get to the level system is on tour and stuff you know like we're not seeing I'm not over there helping my drum tech set up the drums. You know, I'm in five-star hotels. I eat at five-star restaurants. Um, we travel by jet a lot. You know, we've got a very cush life on tour. And then yep. we get to go play in front of 50,000 people at the end of the night. Boo-hoo. Yep. You know? <laughs> but, like, with comics, it's different because – and one of the reasons I enjoy doing comics, and I like, I like to maintain, you know, as much of, like, a grounded lifestyle as possible. It's hard to do – when, uh, you know, when you get the attention you get in a band as big a system, you know. Um, and that's why I like comics, because I'll go to a comic convention, I'll set up like everybody else, although my booth is much better. <laughs> much better to spend the money. Um, I'm guaranteed to make zero dollars. You know, I know exactly what I'm going to make when I go on tour. In fact, I usually have it spent in my head before I even get... <laughs> but... With comics, you know, it's all a matter of how much prep we do. Like the this, you know, I did nine covers, 27 versions in total for the thousandth appearance of Batman. You ever heard of that before? 27 no. variants? Nope. No, no, company? Nope. It could be yeah. a colossal failure. It could be a colossal success. But there, in my opinion, there's no such thing as failure, you know, because this helps gain knowledge for the brand of torpedo comics right right you know, and going forward this is this will not be the last thing we do that's going to be innovative and i was trying to do something even more but uh Sideshow didn't get back to me in time to do it i wanted to do like a, a statue of the bat signal with gargoyles of joker catwoman penguin and you know bane or somebody oh the rogues as the base of the statue and then I wanted all our books to basically go into this, the base of the statue, and that was where they would be stored uh-huh. for our 27 variants. And I wanted the thing to light up. We didn't have time to get it done, and I probably would have lost a ton of money on it. But what's up? But that's not the point, you know. Like I can't stress how important it is to do things for the right reasons. Mm. You know, you do things because it's innovative. It's great to do. Look at the covers we have. Yeah. Sick. Like every one of them is completely different. <laughs> yeah, they are. You know? They're I love how excited you are about it. I, I love these covers. That's why, trust me, I'm not doing nine different covers and buying all nine. It was not cheap to buy these covers. <laughs> I'm not doing it if I'm not a fan myself. You know? Mm-hmm. This is the thousandth anniversary of Batman. The thousandth. Not Detective 1000. This is the thousandth anniversary. <laughs> That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know? So we wanted to go big at Torpedo. That's what we do. Yeah. And we wait till you see the boxes that we're, we're storing these things in. Yeah. We make our the box cost me eight bucks for the box. For a box, wow. For, a, for, a for box. the box, holy shit. For the box. <laughs> like yeah. what? What gave you the idea about the boxes? Can I remember like the first mystery box you guys had? 
I bought like three and I, I saw the presentation on the box. I'm like, holy cow, like this is amazing. I can't wait to open it, but I kind of want to leave it alone because it looks so nice. I think That's I still the got point. the box. I wanted, I wanted even the boxes to be collectible. That's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. And we're going to keep innovating. This is not going to be the end. Like well, Every time you think that's it, no, there's going to be something even cooler. I'm constantly looking for ideas, constantly right. looking for things to make them more collectible. To, I want people to store their boxes and present them, not just, you know, like the idea, somebody had the idea of taking comic book boxes that were white comic book boxes for 50 years or so, or whatever it was, and they said, wait a minute, why don't we put comic art on the boxes? You're storing comic books in them. Why not put comic book art on the outside? Genius, right? Yep. Now that now they're not just white boxes in the closet, you can have it out. You can, it's a presented thing, you know, like it's a piece of art in itself. So I said, why don't we take that and utilize that in our mystery boxes? Now we're not the only people that do mystery boxes. I didn't create mystery boxes. We just do it better, right? <laughs> we have better prizes. We have better content. And what we're striving towards is all exclusive content in our mystery boxes. So you can only get that stuff from us. We just don't quite have the numbers of subscribers yet to get to the point where we can do, you know, the massive 3,000 print runs that mm. we're required to do on a lot of this stuff. We were yeah. able to do a lot less because we did nine covers for the uh, Batman 1027. So on those, our maximum print run is 1,500 which is not a lot of books, right? So if you want that Art Adams mm. double cover, that's like ridiculous, probably the best Batman work he's ever done, you can only get it through Torpedo. There's only 1,500 of those uh, retail normal edition, and then yeah. it goes down from there. It's 1,000 of the black and white, and only 750 of the uh, no trade dress. That's wow. not a lot of books. You know? Well, that's the entire print run. So anybody that gets that, Initially, it may not be a big deal, but I think long term, as we make ourselves more and more unique in what we do and make the torpedo variants themselves something that people strive to collect. For example, I'll give you another example. Our Action Comics 1000 variant with Jim Lee. You guys seen that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that cover is the first appearance of that bad guy on a cover. Oh, shit. Have you ever Whoa. seen that? I didn't know it was the first appearance. He's only on that cover. Out of all those variants they did for Action 1000, the only one that has that villain on the cover is ours. Wow. So eventually, people are going to pick up on that, that that's the first cover appearance of that character. And that's good for Torpedo. And um, because that says, okay, well, wow, they're gotta, doing unique stuff. Yeah. And we got gotta, little surprises like that that we don't even tell people about. But we want the market to kind of like tell people about it yeah, later. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And as we Catch develop on. our. What's that? Smart to go grassroots movement. Correct. So again, it's it's like, you know, I put out over $200,000 on, uh, on these nine variants. You know, a lot of money out there. And of course, I understand not everybody, not every comic book shop can do that. But the idea is we're going to invest into our brand and we're going to give people incredible product and we're constantly going to try to innovate. We're making challenge points for the for the 500 boxes that we did where you get every single cover, you know, and I and I think and I know it's a lot of money. Five hundred dollars is a lot of money, you know, but it's like eleven hundred bucks of value. if You just go by the retail. And on top of that, you're getting a limited edition poster that's only available in that box. And a challenge coin that we had made, and it's a really cool heavy-duty challenge coin, the kind that the military give out 
And like, wow. uh, if you've ever been gifted one of those by anybody in the military or police or anything, they're they're really cool. They're substantive. You know, it's heavier than like a silver dollar. So um, you're only going to get that out of that box. And once they're gone, they're gone. I'm not making them again. You know, so stuff like that later could become very collectible. And we're kind of banking on that. Plus, not to mention, we did um, a, a print run of 750 books, one cover. That's got all the covers, right? Oh. So I haven't really told too many people that, but I'm telling you guys. So every single cover, all nine covers, are on a one, like a one cover variant that we made look like a puzzle, uh-huh. right? So it looks like oh. puzzle pieces put together. Now, only 500 of those are going out, and then we're going to do 250 sign and number version. But if you buy that box, you're the only person that's going to get that. Only 500 of you. That's it, worldwide, right? So we're hoping that one of these things catches fire and becomes like a thousand or two thousand dollar book. Because again, that just brings people back to like, wow, I can, I can not only get my value. I'm not just buying variants that are worthless the next month. I'm getting variants that, hey, I can make money on at some point. Mm. You know, and that's what we want. We want. Somebody told me a long time ago, if you really want to sell stuff, capitalize on people's greed. And need to make money. <laughs> so if we can make it so that the, the people that are loyal to us can have profit in the books that they buy from us or just hold on to them and enjoy them, but not like have to sell them for a dollar later, that's that's something that's very important to Torpedo, you know, creating that value. We want the boxes to be worth money, you know, because we give the boxes away for free when you buy this stuff. But I mean, we're doing that. Foil boxes now, just we're going above and beyond. That's why they cost so damn much. And there, there are some things that you do uh, because it brings money into the shop and some things that you do just for the way it makes people see the shop and feel about the shop. Yes, perception is important. That's why I don't rest on my laurels. You know, like um, most people that come into our shop say they've never seen anything like it in the world, you know. Um, and we did that with a, with a fairly modest budget. But what I have planned for the next one is going to be a place where people come. It's going to be a destination. You're going to want to go there. You're going to have to go there. You're going to be compelled to see it one day. I, th- I, 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 I think we need to get a location in Canada. <laughs> I've, uh, I've talked about, yeah. about that with um, some friends I have that live in uh, Calgary. Yeah. They wanted to kind of be under the torpedo banner. And people yeah. have asked me, you know, would you consider franchising and stuff? And the answer is, the short answer is no. Because I can't control the quality of what you're going to have in those stores. Exactly, yeah. And really... Um, Keep the brand. If you look at it in a short-sighted way, you make a lot more money doing that. But um, it's just not what I'm looking for. I'd rather have one store that's the best in the world than a thousand mediocre ones. Even though financially, I do much better having the bunch of stores. you know. And the yeah. only reason I have the Orange County store is because my buddy who runs that store is the manager. They were going to go out of business. And rather than have the comic book store go out of business, I've known them for 30 years. I said, okay, well, you know, here's what you're doing wrong. Why don't I just pay your bills off, get you current with Diamond and everything, and I'll take over the store. You'll work for me, and I'll put some money into it, and we'll make it something, you know, that's viable. And it's doing, like, four times what he was what he was doing now. And mm-hmm. now he's, he's making more money now, right? Like, because... He had to have a second job just to be able to run the store. And now he doesn't have a second job. He gets to spend time with his kids. Everybody wins. You know? Yeah. 
But I don't really want to do that over and over again because with him, I've known him so long that I know that he'll grasp the importance of learning the torpedo way of doing business. I can't control that if I have 20, 30 locations. Yeah. Or at least right. I can't do it with the infrastructure that we have set up now. Now, if that happens one day and we have control over it and we have great owners, we can depend on them. It's not something that I'm completely ruling out. It's just um, right now I'd rather just build the brand uh, in the grassroots manner that we're doing it and develop um, develop like a unique following of people that, that have faith in what we do and um, and just try to innovate. And not to mention, you guys know I'm, I don't know if you're aware of it actually, but I'm putting out my own comic book through my own company. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that yeah, earlier. So we're going to have tons of exclusive content that you can only get via you know the torpedo boxes you know so and there's a very good chance that this thing is going to get picked up and made into a tv show or a movie at some point i would say like a high chance of it i'm already in it's, a, it's a very 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 cool concept you want to just real quick kind of give a the little rundown of what the concept is of the book yeah um i don't know if there's a quick rundown on it but i'll give you like a kind of a synopsis all right so we discovered that there's a meteor coming towards the Earth. And by the way, I had that idea when I was watching Armageddon. My first thought was I love, that I love that. Michael Bay. Yes. Well, one of his best, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I was, and then, and I, and I was, you know, that's on every weekend on TV. So, you know, I was watching it one of the multiple times that I've seen it. And then I was like, oh, what a cool concept. But, you know, a lot of this is, you know, it's not really there's no science behind what what the, the movie is portraying right so I similar to Armageddon. that a little bit and try <laughs> and figure out like what the reality would be how long it would take you know to get here and all that um see i'm getting too far into the details let me just step back a second then i was thinking about like how much it sucked that we have a finite amount of time on this planet and that just around the time that we're really gaining wisdom and everything, we're on our downside and then we die, you know? So we spend our lives kind of like a collector, right? You spend your whole life collecting these comics and then you either complete it or you die. And then they just kind of get dispersed almost like rain, right? Like rain falls in the ocean, then, you know, um, it evaporates and then collects and clouds again and then so on and so forth. It ends up in a stream somewhere, finds its way back in the ocean and that process happens over and over again so wouldn't it be cool if we could live longer you know if we could live a thousand years imagine what we could accomplish and then um i started to think well what if something happened that gave us that ability and it wasn't necessarily something that happened here on earth so i created a scenario where for whatever reason this meteor is coming towards the earth or asteroid actually it's coming towards the earth and we discover it, and it's about two years away from impacting. And, um, you know, all the worst of humanity happens. You know, rape, murder, and people just lose it. You know, and then after a while, people realize, like, we're all going to die anyway. Why don't we just be the best humans we can in the time that we have left? So it becomes the first time in history that, you know, you don't have uh, religious wars. There's no strife. People are fairly nice to each other. And all the bullshit that we that we deal with every day with either political ideals that we don't agree with or, you know, whatever you think is important, it really isn't. It all kind of gets put to the side. We just focus on our families and our friendships and, and that type of stuff. We go back to work 
and do our jobs the best we can and and just wait for what is ine- inevitable for all of us, which is death, you know? And for whatever reason, I've created a reason, but for whatever reason, um, I'm not going to tell you now. Yeah. Book. <laughs> for whatever reason, the meteor, as it comes closer to the Earth's atmosphere, explodes into billions of pieces. And one of the pieces that lands on Earth creates a 20-mile crater. And at the epicenter of this crater is a basketball-sized orb that basically has hit you know the middle of this crater. And it's almost of a liquid metal, kind of like the Silver Surfer. If you look at like the Silver Surfer in the movie, that was the only cool thing they did is they made him look good. <laughs> you know, otherwise, it was a horrible movie. Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Galactus is a cloud? Come on. Um, anyway, sorry. I, I get so pissed off whenever I think of those movies. That, <laughs> it just sucks. Understandable. It's like, it's like Batman and Bane fighting during the day outside. Come on. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Batman doing this? You know? Like, really? Oh, you, you can't get his ass when he's doing this. Yeah. You didn't hey, like his uh, you didn't like his heavy Muay Thai, his slowed down no, Muay Thai fish or whatever. Stupid. I could have kicked Batman's ass if that was the case. But anyway, so so now we send like investigators to check out this thing where everybody's obviously like celebrating and happiness all across the planet. But you know, smart people of course immediately are like, wait a minute, what is this? Why is it here? Why was there a meteor coming? Let's discover the answers. So while they're doing it, there's like a helicopter uh, carrying a load of materials. Um, a cable snaps, the helicopter crashes, and the concussion sends a worker on the ground like 20 yards. You know, he's thrown like 20 yards. He's lacerated, cuts, this, that, broken arm. And he's just trying to steady himself. And he puts his hand up kind of like this, you know, not looking up, instantly turns into an infant. So now there's an infant in this pile of this man's clothes. Right, where there was a grown man seconds ago. So all these other workers come and they're like, what's going on? And he's talking to them. He's like, what happened? But it's an infant. So what we discover is, for whatever reasons, there's properties in this orb that make you younger. So the closer you are in proximity, the quicker you decrease in age. And, of course, the effects are lessened as you get further away from it. But if you touch it, you decrease dramatically, right? in age and you can actually go back to sperm and egg and cease to exist if you touch it long enough so now it's 150 years into the future and uh, the perimeter of this crater is also the end of the effect of the orb so now there's a giant wall surrounding this thing and this has become the most expensive real estate in the world um, every elite you could imagine lives there the greatest scientists the richest people um, the best that we have in effect live there and there is a sister city that is about a mile or quarter mile or so away from it you know surrounding it called bethany and this uh this city initially was created basically to supply and meet the needs uh, you know as construction workers were building the city of Asantia, which is what the city is called and then after a while people just wanted to be close to that city of immortality you know, and um, now there's about 100 million people or so that live there. And um, this is also after a cataclysmic event that happens 75 years prior to the story. So we no longer have the, the countries and states and cities all across the world. There's zones. 
where human beings still live. There's only about 400 or 500 million people on the planet at this time. But the epicenter is, is and the crux of the story takes place, I guess, in Tale of Two City, Anthony, and Accenture. Um, Accenture being the have-it-alls. You know, they have immortal life. They have uh, all the resources they need. They have technology that is far superior to anything that outside of it. Then you have Bethany, which is kind of like a Brazilian favela, you know, poor, destitute, rundown, you know, hasn't been upgraded or updated in 100 years. You have like uh, three-story limitations on how high you can go because they don't want, you know, buildings getting too tall and having a vantage point over ascension buildings. So they make sure that they are also with low technology. They use technology that is obsolete to us. You know, imagine if today, you know, we had to use like World War II era or 50s era technology. That was all we were allowed to use. You know, meanwhile, our neighbor was using technologies 150 years superior to what we have now. So um, the basics of this story of the first six or seven issue arc is a murder, murder mystery. It gets into some really hardcore subjects that are kind of not popular in Hollywood for multiple reasons. You know, part of which is um, you have a lot of really sick people in Hollywood and they don't want this type of stuff getting out there. So um, it broaches a lot of those subjects, but then later on it gets into more like a conspiracy and um, a plot to take over Accenture from outside of Accenture. Because at the end of the day, like what wouldn't you do to try to get into this place, right? Like who wouldn't you betray who would you screw over? And then what would you do to stay there? You know, there's multiple ways of being an essential, one of which is buying your way in. But for the people that bought their way in, they're already there. So to get in other than that, you know, we call it the one percenters in essential. One percent are out every two years and one percent are brought in. So if you're a scientist, for example, and you're not performing and you're in that bottom one percent, there's a serious chance you'll be out. So if you're a scientist in Accenture, you're going to steal ideas. You're going to do whatever it takes to, mm-hmm. and to avoid that 1%. Then outside, what would you do to take credit for somebody's work to become a part of the 1% that goes in? You know, So you have a lot of betrayal. Um, it takes the worst of human nature and the best of human nature and kind of puts it together. And there's gangs and there's leagues. There's, um, there's guilds. I mean, there's a lot, there's this, uh, this series, I have a long life for it, as long as people are interested in it, you know, there's going to be a lot of in-depth stuff, you're going to fall in love with characters, and then you're going to learn to hate those characters that you love, because you're going to find out maybe they weren't as good a person as I thought they were, and then maybe there's somebody that you thought was a really bad person, and all of a sudden, you're like, well, wow, I didn't know they were doing it for those reasons, you know, it's like, I equate it to my kid, you know. When I tell my kid no more iPad, my kid thinks I'm the worst human being on the planet. You know, but I'm doing it so that, you know, she uses her brain function doing other things and, and so that, you know, she's not some dolt when she's older, you know. So, like, you're doing something for her benefit that she doesn't see it that way. And that happens a lot in Bethany and Ascension, where the powers that be are doing things for your, not always, though, for your enrichment. Sometimes they're doing it for the complete opposite. So it's just like, there's a lot to uncover here. And also there's all these places, like I have scenes where, you know, there's um, people that go around at great risk to themselves and they go to old cities, abandoned cities that are 
150 years abandoned. There were 75 years abandoned. Sorry, 75 years is the truth. And they're going over there and finding weapons and old technologies. You know, they're not allowed to do that. So they do it at risk, right? But they'd come back and that sells for high value. And um, the coinage that um, is uh, the currency in, in Bethany is water, right? Because resources are hard to come by. So, you know, they take water and they basically use a process similar to Han Solo and Carbonite, and they make it like a, something that would be used to purchase things. And then when you need to use the water, there's a machine that you put it in and it makes it into water again, or vice versa. You know, so, and then there's also people that work in Essentia who are given like 25-year contracts. And they have their own city within the city of Bethany where they protect each other because you're out for 25 years and then you're back in. But if one of those people are killed, somebody else gets that opportunity. So there's a lot of there's a lot of betrayal happening and a lot of stuff that I'm not going to talk about right now because I have to leave something to the imagination like, of the readers and something to uncover. Huh? I'm ready for season two. <laughs> I have like five years mapped out already. Awesome. The first seven issues done with art. So wow. we're going to do a Kickstarter for it. Um, Jim actually said I wasn't going to do the Kickstarter because I feel like, okay, you know, um, I don't really need the money from people to do it. And I'd rather leave it for other, you know, Kickstarter campaigns that do need the money. You know what I mean? But Jim was like, no, you have to do it. It's a great way to get it out there. So. You know, he's a very smart guy. Take his advice. Plus, I figured it's also a great way. Um, I might be able to get system fans or fans of Torpedo in the Kickstarter, take a look at what I'm doing, and then maybe right. find other stuff, discover other stuff. So there could be a happy byproduct of that. And, you know, if I can make a lot of money doing it, I'm not going to be opposed to that because I could just use that money to put more value into Torpedo and, and um, also figure out other cool things for Essentia. Like I'm having patches made. You know, I want to... I want people. My goal in two years is I want to. I want to see people at Comic Con walking around wearing uh, Ascension gear, you know, and wow, so dope. being kind of like an exclusive club of people that know what it is. Initially, the way you, if you had like a Targaryen patch on your shirt the first couple of years, Game of Thrones yeah. was out, and you know, not being familiar with it, then you were, then it blew up massive, right? Then everybody knew, it, you know. Then you were buying them at gas stations, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who, who the fuck wears a Targaryen patch, though? I mean, I guess... Targaryens. I guess, like, <laughs> right. I mean, they were the ruling class for the longest time, so there is a lot of honor, but you forget. You only you only remember the incest stuff, but... Yeah. But, hey, yeah, Um. so I, I wanted to... the Egyptians. What's that? <laughs> I know, very true. <laughs> um, John, so I... So there's there's a couple of things. We, we've been with you for a while. We want to respect your time. We don't want to keep you too long if you've got things to do. But um, we did. I did want to ask you a couple of things. Um, sure. Specifically, you know, you, the way you speak, the way you've you've seen a lot, you've learned a lot. You know how to speak. To, you know how to speak to people. There's a way of um, handling, you know, people that you are aware of how to do it and be respectful. Your Is social question, media. Why do you tell people to fuck off on Instagram? <laughs> I didn't. And, and then you'll <laughs> bash their faces in, and you'll <laughs> knock the teeth in the back of their heads. You Is that what you tell that's not what I see. But the thing is, no, I mean, what I was going to say is that's actually uh, contrary to that. 
um, I noticed that you are willing to kind of talk to almost anybody. And um, from what I see, uh, it's funny because, like, I know you're getting destroyed by certain media blogs, by certain, like, band blogs, right, for the stuff, your outspoken views that you have online. People take the opportunity to then bash you based off of uh, the things you say, which, you know, whatever, that's their prerogative. Um, You know, you have certain viewpoints that, um, I'll be honest, like, I don't agree with everything, your, your opinion, I don't agree with everything you say, but I do respect your ability to have it. And I more than anything, respect your ability to have that dialogue with people, rather than just, you know, go down insults. At the end of the day, what I see from you is a guy who wants to make a living. He has passions, you know, he wants to, he wants to see those passions through. You have that ability to do it that so many people lack, right? You were in a band system. I don't want to say it's 100% political because I know it wasn't. More than anything, I would say system was just fucking out there as far as like you guys talked on everything, right? Like politics, sex, drugs, whatever it was. Like it was almost like everything's in your music. Yeah, there was some political points here and there. Um, Some of them were like really, really far left. I think if you're like an average music fan who knows System of a Down, I think someone who like reads the lyrics like prison song, right? will then come and like see what you're posting on social media and they'll be fucking confused because they'll be like, yeah. I thought, I thought John. So let, me, let me explain that. So uh, number one, yeah, we have four individuals in system of a down. Right. And each of us thinks differently. And on some things we're completely simpatico, right? And we agree a hundred percent and other things uh, we don't agree at all, you know, but um, the vocalists have a little bit of an advantage because usually they're the lyricists as well. So Serge has always had more of a left-leaning mindset. And to be honest with you, I lean left on a lot of subjects, you know, but not all subjects. And um, because of that, because of that ability, people think that the lyrics of some songs, right? Because I'd say only about 20% of our lyrics are political at all in system. Right, yeah. And the rest of it is completely out there, whatever, you know, some of it was nonsensical. But because of that, People have the misconception that System of a Down is like a, a Democrat endorsing band, right? Like a Democratic Party endorsing band. My right. philosophy has always been I don't endorse the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. I think that there's good people in both parties and there's ideals that I believe in that lean more to the left, more to the center, and more to the right. You know, right. I believe in the Constitution of the United States. I believe I'm a constitutional Republican, you know, in that um, I hold our rights to be important and unique in the world where, you know, there's places uh, you don't have to go very far. All you have to do is go to England and see that they don't really have freedom of speech there. They're not allowed to have weapons. And because of that, they've had some problems as of late, you know, in the last 15, 20 years. Um, I think it's important to understand that governments can become tyrannical and that if uh, if you have uh, a people and a populace that is defanged and has no weaponry, then they have no options when the government becomes tyrannical. Part of the reason that we have these uh, protections in place is so that if if we do get into a situation where some fascist does come into power in the United States, we have the ability to at least form militias and fight against it. You know, that still doesn't guarantee victory because the argument I always get on the other side is, how are you going to fight? Um, against tanks? How are you going to fight against nukes? As if they're going to start dropping nukes on people. But it's a stupid argument. It worked yeah. very well in, in Vietnam. It worked very well in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. You know, small groups of people 
with weapons can be very effective against large military constructs. You know, yeah. at the end of the day, it's not about whether or not we think we can win against a tyrannical government. It's it's we have a responsibility to try and we may mm-hmm. fail, but no tyrannical government lasts forever. You know? Yeah. Um, no matter how powerful it is, they they'll eventually crumble. And it's yeah. only because of rebellious people who, you know, people think I'm a bootlicker, which I which is insane to me just because I I um, I applaud and, and defend cops, military and other people that put their lives on the line for us. Right. Like at the end of the day, they're doing it for us. Right. Being yeah. a cop sucks in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm not saying there aren't good, you know, bad cops, but there's also a lot of good ones. And that should be that should be something that's brought up. I also am against the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm proud of that because I think the Black Lives Matter movement is a bullshit movement. Yeah, so that's that's something that I think a lot of people, it's hard for them to hear that because they haven't really gotten the opportunity themselves to hear kind of or see it through rather from the beginning to the end. You're obviously looking into it and seeing, um, you know, what it, who runs it, what are they doing, how are they organizing? And I think the reason people like I think what it is, is like Black Lives Matter. They hear that and you're either, you're either for it or against it. That's the popular thing to do. Right. So when they hear you say that you are against the Black Lives Matter movement, which is very specific, Black Lives Matter movement does not mean you are against black lives because. Well, I think it's an easy assumption to make, right? It is. Because even the wording of Black Lives Matter, it's actually very intelligently worded. Like whoever came up with that was like, let's let's put together something that if you don't agree with it, you're a racist. That's basically what they're saying. If you don't agree with my movement, you're racist. Just like if you don't agree with the Patriot Act, you're not a patriot, right? Meanwhile, the Patriot Act, if anybody is aware of the Patriot Act, is one of the worst um, uh, things our government has done. It's an infringement on our rights. They spy on um, surveillance without warrants. Surveillance. It's it's the least patriotic thing anybody's ever passed in the United States. So I can I can say with great confidence that I'm completely against the Patriot Act, and that the, that makes me a patriot. It doesn't take away from the fact that I'm a patriot. Right. And I can be in complete agreement that Black Lives Matter as well and equally to any other lives, including white, including Asian, including Indian, whatever, right? right. Whatever you are, Native American, your lives are all of value and equal. Mm-hmm. So if it was called Black Lives Matter 2, I'll be 100% behind it. But once you say Black Lives Matter, and I get the rhetoric that it, it doesn't mean other lives don't matter. But once you start saying all lives matter and that becomes a racist term, that's ridiculous, right? And then also, I have a major problem with the founders, some of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I believe that they're either communist or Marxist in their ideals. Well, it doesn't so, it doesn't help when, when they get interviews and they say that themselves. It is right. so not best for PR, so I, said, I see that. With that being said, I get idealism. I truly do. Everybody should be equal. Everybody should be financially secure. Everybody should have medical. A lot of things I agree with. We have a very, uh, we have a lot of social programs and um, programs that are made to help people in the United States, and they do so in other countries too. You know, um, my singer keeps telling me about how amazing New Zealand is and how much better New Zealand is uh, in in terms of taking care of its people. And I remind him that New Zealand is about five million people, and um, they don't have to spend too much money on the military because the United States protects their ass. So 
at the end of the day, if New Zealand didn't have that protection, they'd probably be called China, you know, or <laughs> India, or whoever else came and took them over because they wouldn't stand a chance, you know. So, you know, you can't, you got to look at all aspects of it. And right. then a lot of people tell me, oh, wait a minute, though, you know, we have socialist democracies already. And I said, no, we don't. Uh, the only socialist democracy we really have is called Venezuela, which started as a socialist democracy and in one generation went from one of the uh, wealthiest and highest uh, GDP countries in the world to be people eating tires and garbage. You know, and that was because socialist countries that embrace complete socialism always lead to a fascist dictatorship. Mm -hmm. It's every single time in history. You look at China. That's a that's a communist country. There's so many wealthy people in China, but they're all at the top and there's, there's a finite amount of them and they help each other out to get there. And then you have everybody else on one level. Crap. You know, they're doing poorly. And that's what ends up happening in these countries. And I don't want the idealistic nature of people to bring that upon this country. And it's very possible when you have people like AOC going out there and just talking out of their ass. You know, she really is clueless. You know, so... I'm not opposed to to reforming police departments and training them better and all that. You know, I don't know why police are sitting there giving us tickets, to be honest with you. Well, you to know? bring money in. Yeah, if you're going to do that, just have a division that says we just give tickets. Don't call police. Yeah. Yeah. Police should be there to protect us, to, to help us, right. to nurture core values in neighborhoods and to, and, and to encourage us to be better, not to, to punish us. Tax us. Punish us. You know, yeah. they're not the judge, jury, and, and executioner. So when you have somebody like George Floyd that's killed by a cop, throw the book at that cop. That cop is a citizen at the end of the day and has to follow the rules that are set by um, by our Congress and um, you know and, and the people that vote for the Congress. You know, they have to follow our rules. They work for right. us, right? Just like the government does. So right. you know, it's ludicrous to think to think I'm against any lives. You know, I'm right. I'm for all lives, you know, and when you have um, when you have it's really irresponsible because there's a major tug of war going on between the Democratic and Republican parties. And and really, it's a lose lose because whoever gets in power, the other party does everything they can to, to make it so that you get nothing done while you're in power. Correct. You know, well, what kind of sense is that? You know, they don't meet in the so middle, which they should. You're supposed to work together. So I had an idea. OK. Whoever is running for president on either side, if we get a third party, it'll be the best thing in this country, by the way. That, not like a, a third party. I'm talking about a real third party that gets the power to get up and actually get somebody elected. Right. And that'll be the best thing. But until we get that, I would suggest whoever is running for president, whoever loses becomes vice president. And your cabinet mm. should be at least 30 to 40 percent of people that don't agree with you and are on the other side. Because then... You could have a well-rounded discussion. You, um, it, so, like, let's say Bernie Sanders, who I don't agree with much he has to say, but let's say he was in President Trump's cabinet. Well, his ideas are so far to one side that they would have to meet in the middle right. to get anything done, right? And yeah. if there's like six counselors to Trump and three of them think really left and three of them think really right, they're going to have to give him advice based on what can actually get done. Then you can have Congress and the Senate support that. We can actually get things done in this country as opposed to constantly hurt our middle class and uh, constantly hurt our poor that we're doing really nothing to help. You have 80,000 homeless people in Los Angeles. They're so concerned with plastic straws 
in the ocean that they do like campaigns to stop plastic straws and this that. Meanwhile, people are on, sleeping on the streets. You know, do something about that. I'm just tired of the hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, there's a lot of hypocrisy out there. A lot of people in high positions, uh, including artists and musicians, and uh, you know, it's easy to be on that side of the the uh, pendulum right now. You know, that's the easy road. Doing what I do and having people hate you for it and being vilified for it is harder. But at the end of the day, I have to understand, System of a Down has fans that are right-leaning, left-leaning, people don't give a shit about politics all across the board. If my singer is out there only talking about one aspect of it, that person is not only going to turn off fans who think the, more conservatively, but also is going to make people that think conservatively that are fans of System think less of themselves. I want them to know that even in System of a Down, which some people say is a political band, I don't really think so. We're not raging against a machine that is all politics, you know, but, you know, we have political aspect to it. I want them to know that even within this band, there's diversity of thought and it's okay to have diversity of thought and that you can always meet in the middle. There's a middle ground, but you cannot come from a morally high superiority point, which is what a lot of Democrats tend to do these days. We're morally superior, so you know none of what you say matters because you're a racist or you're a sexist or, you know, just go ahead and put in which ist is convenient. So I have a major problem with the Democratic Party right now. Twenty years ago, I had a major problem with the Republican Party. Ten years from now, I might have a major rep- problem with the Republican Party. In the end of the in the end of it, I'm always going to be the contrarian, right? Because I don't want stuff like. Uh, that happened in the 50s with McCarthyism to happen again. Now you have like a cancel culture where people are losing their jobs. You know, this uh, essentially could be a failure because of my views. It may be I go to Hollywood with it and they're like, well, we, we can't touch this with a 10-foot pole because of the way you think. You know, so I'm putting my my future at risk, yeah. right? Because I want to be successful. The smartest thing for me to have done was to keep my mouth shut about my feelings. But at the end of the day, you don't always do things because it's a smart thing to do. Sometimes you do things because it's the right thing to do. Right. And I get messages every single day from cops, from kids. Uh, the cops are just like, look, we can't say anything. We can't do anything. We're just trying to do our jobs. We're trying to protect people. We hate what happened to George Floyd. We hate it when bad cops do bad things. You know, but we do what we can. We're, we're... And if you think about cops, that's the toughest job in the world, you know? It's worse than being in the military and being in in, a, in Iraq during a, like a battle, because if you go to in the military, generally speaking, you're there for a year, you know, and then you're out of the combat zone unless you resign. But as a cop, you're basically in a combat zone your entire career. You know, yeah. your chance, chances of getting shot at every day are 50-50. You never know when it's going to come, you know. So it's a tough job, and there's a lot of good men and women doing it, and I want to support those men and women because those are the people that we should be concentrating on, get more of those people to want to be cops, right? Good-hearted, good-natured people that want to help. Well, you're not going to get those people to become cops now. You're going to get even worse people want to become cops now. Yeah. And then you're talking about defunding and all that. And I, I'm all for taking money and putting it into different social programs and training and, you know, get the homeless off the streets and all that. But aren't we taxed enough? You know, how about we allocate the taxes in a proper way and, you know, um, the government does nothing well. So why give them more power to do things? Give it to, like, private industries and say, you know, we have a homeless problem. 
whoever comes up with the best solution at the cheapest price, they get the funding. I guarantee you that in a few months, you will have great ideas and great programs. But no, what we what do we do? We put billions of dollars into it. It, it gets shaken down. The tree gets shaken so much there's no leaves left on it by the time it gets to the people that are really, it's really supposed to help. You know, we had Obamacare. It, what was it, a $4 billion website that never worked? You know, $4 billion? I guarantee you if they, you gave that to a private industry and said, we're going to pay you to run this for us, it would have gotten done for $100 million. Guarantee it. Give me $10 million, I'll get it done for you. You know? Yeah. So it's just like, you know, and I totally understand most of the people that vilify me are really young, idealistic people. And, you know, there is kind of a very left-leaning, you know, um, school I, I, system yeah. that we have, college right. system that we have. It's mostly left-leaning, so they're taught one way. And, uh, you know, we have a society of people that have been told for the last 25 years that everybody's equal and there's no winners in life and no losers. And then they get out in the real world and they're like, well, how come I'm not getting 80, 80 grand a year for my job? You know, I took uh, social studies and they told me everybody's equal, you know, and there's an agenda out there. And I think it's it's an agenda to destroy this country from the inside because this is the best country in the world. And, it, you know, it's not xenophobic to say it. It's just the reality of it. You have more chances of prospering in this country than any other country. And there's a reason why all these countries, including Canada, that have free health care, people that have any money have private health care that they pay for. And if they have any real problems, they get on a plane and they come to the United States for treatment. There's a reason for it, you know, and uh, and I can tell you from experience. My grandmother died in a hospital in Canada. She was in a hallway for two days in a, on a bed in a hallway because they didn't have rooms. Because, again, government does nothing well. So if you want to waste money, give them more taxes because they'll spend it on stupid shit or pocket it themselves. You know, um, they are pocketing. Yeah. Wasn't there a family member of Obama's that, that, uh, was involved in the, um, in the, uh, the site for Obamacare. I mean, there's so many back alley deals that we don't even know about yeah. and probably billions of dollars offshore that we'll never know about. And, uh, you know, it's just like, it's this constant tug of war that these two parties are doing. And the only loser is us. Right. Because they go to dinners together with each other. Thank Don't you. Them fool yeah. Them. Yes. You know? They do. Regardless they of what they fight. Down on each other, they might even get me and my singer coming down on each other. You know? <laughs> because, like, his views are, in my opinion, batty. And he must think I'm a nutcase, you know, for my views. So, um, and that's I, all it's meant to do is to separate us and then. You know, give us other shiny toys to concentrate on. Yeah. And meanwhile, our life's not getting any better. You know? Right. And, and one bad thing that happens is this belief that if people disagree on on any of the issues, that they can't still have conversations with that, each yeah, other. Yeah, that's the worst part. Yeah. yeah, but you generally can have conversation with somebody that thinks they are morally superior to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's no yeah. enlightening somebody that thinks you're wrong just for having your opinion and that you're a bad person just for having your opinion. Right. Right. And that's kind of like being force fed down a lot of young people's minds right now and, and throats and saying that if you don't think this way, you're a bad person. Who cares about the ramifications? You yeah. Know? And, and also it creates a really bad atmosphere out there of racial tension. Because if you're telling black people that white people 
are all racist or that there's systematic racism everywhere, which there's no proof of systematic racism uh, by the government of the United States in any way, shape or form in modern times. Of course, there was, you know, um, during like Jim Crow and even in the 60s with the civil rights movement. But guess who the racists were? You know, they were Democrats. You, know? you mean, so, like, you mean racism? Race you mean racism that has legislation behind it? Is that what you mean? Correct. Right. So that so I think that's another thing that people get hung up on, too, is when people say there's no such thing as systematic racism. There is no legislation behind that backs racism in the country. That's correct. That's not to say that there aren't people who are who are who aren't racist. There's a lot of people who are racist. There's, that's not systematic. Uh, I mean, I think, again, I think it probably it probably depends on you, you have to you have to make a concise effort to understand how you're defining that term. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of perspective. At the end. Exactly. How are you looking at it? Right. For me personally, like I have a hard time accepting the someone saying there's no such thing as systematic racism, because in my opinion, a system is just a, in my opinion, system is heh, system. A system is in place where there's people who are in control and who have a sense of control. And from that control, they they kind of disperse, you know, whatever it might be, whether it be law, whether it be expectation, whatever it might be. Right. <clears throat> I grew up as a Hispanic. Right. Mm -hmm. In my in, in my in, in growing up Hispanic, I was taught by my family system. And it's not obviously government system, but in my family system, I was taught at home to fear black people, you know, and that's because we are in direct competition with other minorities in the country. So as a Hispanic man or as a Hispanic, you know, you have to be better than whatever other minorities trying to take your job. You know, the white person, whoever is in control already puts you at a disadvantage because we can't speak the language, we weren't born here, whatever it might be. So it's already it's already instilled in a lot of people. And so I think it's difficult for that separation to happen and not really see it. Like I, I it's impossible for me not to see it because I was born into it and was raised with it ingrained in my mind. You know what I mean? So you know Well, it's... I'll tell you, I'll tell you Hispanics and blacks are at a disadvantage in this way, and that where they live is predominantly um, led by Democrats. Right. And it has been for decades. And Democrats like to keep people as government as much on the on dependent on the government as possible in a lot of cases. Right. So that has done that has done no positives for Hispanics and, and uh, African-American people that live in those areas. Thank you. Yeah. yeah so so it's like Democrats. Demo like Democrats bank on the fact that, hey, let's get this group of people to be dependent on us uh, because then it just gives us more power. We're, you know, we're, we're able to kind of get more power out of the dependence on on us. Right. It's all about dependence on the government, because right. once you become dependent on the government, it's a slippery slope. Right. Then you right. have generational dependency. So we had. But isn't isn't that racist? But that's not systematic. But that's the that's the democratic that's that's Democrats. They're part of the system. That's not systematic. That's you're you're electing people. You have the ability to elect people that are going to take away your your benefits or give you more. So you have to you have to instill core values. You have to do, Hispanics have pretty good family structure, right? Uh, for the most part, I mean, it depends on the family, but yeah, I think we did. Yeah. <laughs> See, I can only speak I can only speak from Armenians, and we have a very right. good uh, core family structure we're right? very similar like we're very similar like you know you put fa like family is everything obviously for your culture as well like the the people in your unit that's who you protect and that's why and that's why i think that it perpetuates in my in my family that's why racism was perpetuated is because 
we are Hispanic. This is our family. This is who we're related to. You're first. We are first. So put yourself first. Always, take, you know, you want to put yourself in a situation did that's going to be advantageous. Did you grow up in a Hispanic neighborhood or was it multicultural? Um, I would say it's multicultural. So it was kind of just. I'll tell you, where I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and my group of friends, I didn't know another Armenian. Wow. I was like one of the only Armenians in the Valley. Most of the Armenians had congregated in um, Hollywood and Glendale at the time. Yeah. Uh, so the school I went to, my friends were, were in our little group of uh, people that played Dungeons and Dragons together <laughs> was a black guy who's still a friend of mine, James Hazley. He plays in my uh, band, uh, These Great Men. You may have. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The that. cover band. Yeah. Right. So uh, James and then there was a good friend of mine that was Italian. There was uh, a friend of mine that was Korean named Beck. We used to call him Beck because his last name was something to do with Beck. And um, he reminded us of the singer Beck later on. So that name stuck. And we still call him Beck. His real name's Danny. You know, but <laughs> anyway, so what I'm saying is we had a lot of different people in our group. So maybe it, it also could be because I look at the world through my eyes, right? right. My, and my uh, experiences. And because of that, Maybe I don't see certain things. Yeah. You know, if I looked at it from your perspective of your shoes, maybe I would look at it differently. But it's just right. a matter of getting to the point where, as Americans, we understand that yeah. everybody deserves the same equal opportunity yes. to be successful yeah. and that we strive towards creating legislation and um, and rules of law right. that give everybody the same opportunity. And I think we have done that. Right. You know? um, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm not a lawyer. But in general, I think we have that here in the United States. So to, to say that, um, I mean, especially when there's so many minorities that are succeeding here in the United States, you know, there's the Asian Americans, there's Indian Americans, there's black Americans, there's Hispanic Americans, Armenian Americans, and we're all succeeding in our own way, you know? So I think that as long as we have that equal opportunity, then we're going to get somewhere. You know, and I also feel like the racial divide was actually diminishing until it became so much of a talking point. Like it got worse, in my opinion, in the last 12 years. It's it's definitely. And I think that's why people people get confused. I'm not because I see what you post and I'm hearing what you're saying. I I feel like you're more centrist. I know you say you're conservative, but re- I no, feel no, like no, you're. No. See, by the way, let me just clear something up. You're right. I am a centrist. Yeah. But I have to go hyper conservative to combat the hyper liberal <laughs> post that Serge says. Really, right. that's where. Well, you got to offset. You got to offset. Correct. Yeah. But, and but by the, the way, to my detriment. Well, okay. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, I think I think the important thing is is and I, I this is why I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about it because you can't. It's impossible to do this on Instagram. It's impossible to allow a blog to take something you post and expand on it and think they know what you're talking about. They're never going to do that. No. I think. Well, they don't I, ask me. Right. Well, that's why yeah. that's why I like that we get the opportunity to do this, because why am I going to listen to anybody else third hand telling me what you think when I have the opportunity to straight up ask you what you think, you know, and I and, shrink away from no questions, by the way. And yeah. I love that. I love that because I, I was seeing in the in before all the stuff about system, dude, if you want to know what's going on with system, look up your interviews because you don't you fucking don't sugarcoat anything. Everyone knows exactly why there's no system right now. Just look up John's interview. Anyways. I'm actually being nice, by the way. Funny, you're being you're being honest, which is beautiful. But um, I think what I was getting back to is, I I don't like the place that we've gotten to, where, like, 
you have you came into my life at a very young age, right? Your music, and then later on your comics. You you've influenced me a great deal, right? So I appreciate the things that you that you've influenced me on and that you've given, right? And as a fan, whatever. Um, and then when I hear you speak, I don't know if it's because that gives me the opportunity to listen to you and give give you the benefit of the doubt. Or well, you're, see you're open minded to it because you have an interview show. Yeah, but, but you have to be open minded to people talking about things, sometimes things that you're not comfortable with. Yeah, but I think there's interview shows that won't even talk to you because of some of the stuff you say, you know, oh, there's people. I, I don't doubt that. Yeah, there's people there's people that don't want to talk to you because of the things that you say. And I understand that. I understand that. But the thing is, I don't I don't think they get 100 percent of your viewpoint by just by just shutting themselves off to you and not allowing you to expand on what you say. Because I will say, though, part of it is my fault because I go to such an ex- extreme on my Instagram, right, that it's hard for them to – but to be honest with you, though, as much of an extreme as I go to on some stuff, even when I put things that are very, like, vague and open to, yeah. like, to both sides, I get hammered for it anyway. It doesn't, I could put yeah, a yeah. flower up there and they're yeah. fuck Trump. Well, that's <laughs> why I liked – you put the presidential seal, but it said, like, the seal of comic books – Yes, yes. That, I did that as a troll, by the way. Right, I know, and that's why when I read it, I go, "That's hilarious," because this is exactly what you're talking about. Is you want to see what? By the way, I made gonna... those. They're in my office. They're really cool. <laughs> <laughs> so what I was getting at is, this is an example of what we need. Is like I might not agree with 100% of the things you say, right? I don't agree with a statement you might make. That doesn't mean I'm not going to fucking talk to you because I want to know. If by what you say, is that really what I'm hearing? Is that what you mean? I have to know that because how can I make any opinion about you accurately if I, I don't give you the opportunity? And I feel like we're at a point in our country like, you know, I'm not I'm not a Trump supporter. People are very, people are very closed off. And the one thing they don't realize is what if I'm wrong? Right. How am I ever going to discover I'm wrong? Thank you. You don't sit there and tell me why you think you're right. Right. Yeah. yeah. To, to, to talk listen. to you about it and give and you like, listen. like, you know, like. And I, listen I, to me and, and really understand where I'm coming from. Yeah. And then and, I have to listen to you and really understand where you're coming from. Hey, right. man, most of my friends are liberal. Guess what? We still love each other. Yeah. You know? yeah. Jim is a very liberal. I mean, I, it's not my business to discuss his politics, but he's a very liberal guy in a lot of things. Right. You know, and we have discussions and I say agree to disagree on this one. You know, my yeah. good friend, Mark Brooks, he's as liberal as they come, you know, and he gives me great advice. And right. uh, he's a fantastic artist, of course, and did one of our covers for Detective 1027 mm-hmm. available at uh, Torpedo <laughs> <laughs> uh, The point is that we find that about 95% of the things we agree on 100%. And then there's that 5% where it's like, okay, we don't agree, but right. life goes on. You yeah. know? If you don't like chocolate ice cream, and I love chocolate ice cream, are you wrong for not liking chocolate ice cream? Yes. <laughs> yes, <you are. laughs> we'll fucking fight you in that one. But one thing that people have to keep in mind is what you said a few minutes ago that your beliefs are based on your life, your world, the yeah. the world as you have seen it, the experiences you have had, because perception is reality. Yeah. Perception is reality, and and by the way, knowing that, I have to be open to somebody that's had a completely different life, somebody that's had horrible interactions with cops for example their whole life has been one bad interaction with cops i have to listen to that person get to know where they're coming from so that i can gain perspective and that could or could not change my opinion 
But at the, at the end of the day, it's about having the compassion and the wherewithal to look at another yeah. human being that's across from you that's had different uh, different path in life and saying that you matter to me as well and your opinions matter to me. And I'm going to take that in consideration with everything I do. It's just about courtesy at the end of the day. Right. Hands down. Most yeah. important thing is courtesy. And and for some, like, you know, we've been, I don't know what it is, but it's like, I feel like we're not watching, like, I feel like we're watching a football game where you're rooting for one side or the other to win. And then at the end of the game, you just go your separate ways. But like what you said. A friend is, of mine told me, friend of mine told me last week, he goes, I don't watch the news ever. He goes, CNN is made uh, purely to make people on the left afraid. And Fox News is purely there to make people on the right afraid. Yeah, it's true. That's it. That's their entire job and focus is to make you afraid of your neighbors. Right. So don't, you know, I try to find news where I can, you know. It's impossible, man. Sensational, sensationalist news is the most entertaining to watch. Right. Right. When you find, when you, when you find a good outlet, let us know. Well, you know what? I like uh, a couple outlets. I try to gain perspective from different news organizations. Like, um, I'll read the the New York Times, for example, which is very left wing, right? Um, and then I'll read the Epoch Times, which is more right wing. I'll read the Daily Wire because I love Ben Shapiro. I think he's a, he's really intelligent and has some interesting viewpoints. Oh, absolutely! Yes, love Ben Shapiro. Um, <laughs> and then. Um, you know, I actually really liked Don Lemon until recently. In the last, like, three or four years, I think he lost it. But he used to be very balanced. And I wish he would go back to that because I really enjoyed, uh, although that's more entertainment, you know. And uh, I can't watch CNN anymore. It's just impossible. Because you know, I, you could see what they're doing. It's clear. Yeah. Well, so that's when why. I, when, I, when people are suckered by it, it just doesn't, you know, I'm like, come on, man, really? When, uh, when I, uh, when I want to. Show. Yeah, that's why, like, if I want to see what's being reported by one side, I go to the other side to see what they're saying. Like, if anything ever... You're seeing the the worst. Well, yeah, like, anytime, anytime... BBC, you know, BBC is still very good. And actually, Al Jazeera is a really good news uh, organization. You ever uh, ever heard of them? Read Al Jazeera or watch Al Jazeera? I don't think I've watched it, but I've heard it. I mean, like... So Al Jazeera is the network that... um, Vice President Al Gore, you know, we're supposed to be underwater already. You're aware of that, right? Oh, the you global know, warming? Yes, we're, we're already supposed to be dead. But um, it didn't stop Al Gore from selling uh, his news network, his cable news network to, uh, or channel to Al Jazeera for, what was it, $150 million or something like that? But he sold his network to Al Jazeera? Yeah. Okay. So he, he cashed out real nice. And, uh, you know, I just I just feel like there's but so John, much information out there that's bullshit. He's a, you know? he's a good guy, though. He's a Democrat. He's a good guy, right? <laughs> well, they're all good guys for themselves. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, so, you know, it's... Yeah. Um, At the end of ahead. the day, we're the, we're the dukes. Yes. You know, we're the ones that are out there suffering while they get richer and richer. Yeah. And we all know that there's powers that are uh, that are running these politicians. You watch Billions. You ever watch Billions? No, but it, I heard of it. I saw that's like a one. microcosm of the way Oof. life works, you know? Is that the one that's about, is that the same one that was about like the Madoff thing or is that a different show? It's kind of, sim- no, just, it's, it's, uh, it's fiction. So just watch it. It's good. Okay. You know? Yeah. 
But like, uh, it, 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 when you watch that, you're like, <laughs> of course, the inside deals. Who's going to get prosecuted? If you don't have money, you get you get the rail. You know, like, and if you do have money, you get scot free. But then there's like some uh, somebody with ten billion dollars calling the shots. All right. these politicians, they all work for somebody far richer than they are. Exactly. That's yep. how they get into power. Because yeah. you know what? Somebody like me that would probably be good in politics and do what's best for people, I'll never get elected. I would get destroyed. They would like, they would find every negative thing in my life because I didn't spend the last 30 years setting myself up for politics, right. living a squeaky clean, clean life, you know? Yeah. I'm going to leave you at this. I got to get going. My wife's going to Sure. Yeah. No, it's all right. But, hey, I'll, I'll do this again if you guys want. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, man. Likewise. You know, we, and, I uh, honestly, I we really appreciate it. We thank you for your time. Um, I, There's nothing I, I've said today that you can't put up. You can put the I love whole, it. Don't even edit it. Yeah. John, um, awesome. you know, just, I, I always, I always appreciate how open and honest you are. I'm really glad that you're able, I really want other people who listen to this to understand if you don't agree with somebody, you don't agree with what they're saying, ask them about it because you're never going to learn about viewpoints without asking. Um, at the end of the day, I think, you know, you're just a guy that wants to wants to have a, a life, a good life for his family. And you appreciate the ability to be able to do that. So do we. Um, but anyways, uh, aside There's from There's a that, whole list of people on my Instagram. I don't know if you guys can see it. No, I can't. No, it's too bright. There we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's DMs. conversations with people that don't agree with me. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I have my general. That's where I put all my people that don't agree with me that I have conversations with. And these are, <laughs> you know, we're... we're um, we're conversing with each other. And then I right. have my primary and those are the people I do agree with, you know, right. and I talk to the people, you know, here's a young lady, Bridget, who I speak with all the time. And she, she always sends me stuff that's, um, that's contrary to what I post. And we have nice dialogue about it. You know, exactly. sometimes I convince her otherwise, but usually we're both pretty steadfast on what we think. Yeah. And we still have a nice dialogue about it and there's nothing negative about it because at the end of the day, we're just trying to enlighten each other. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Before you go, as long I got to you do it in a nonviolent fashion. Exactly. Yeah. Before you go, I got to tell you, when you were opening the Orange County sh uh, shop under your name, um, there was uh, there was a part of the line that got hit by an egg by some jackasses that were driving by. Yeah, and ridiculous. Someone threw an mm -hmm. egg at the crowd and hit a guy in the back. You took him was inside. It was me. Yeah, it was me. So. You threw mm -hmm. the egg? No, I got hit <laughs> no, by the egg. Oh, you got hit by the egg. I was the guy that got hit by it. And you, you. you went outside and you took me and you brought me to the front of the line and you told me I didn't have to have anything. I can get whatever I wanted signed. Jim put a little head sketch on the book that I had because, because oh, Jim was, Jim was doing the signing. So I knew back then you were a good guy. I knew back then that you, you were, a, I mean, I knew before that, but I mean, that's why like when, when all this shit started coming about your name and I started looking, it's like, Oh fuck, what's he saying? You're a good dude. And you, Thank you, you I appreciate it. You have a lot of, I've done a lot of things that, that nobody will ever know because I don't advertise it. I don't do things so that people know about it. That's the way you know? to do it. I just do things because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And um, and I'm I'm sorry that you got hit with the egg. That sucked. I wish we could have caught the guy and beat his ass. I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry it happened too because we still hear about it to this day. <laughs> you know what? Kids do stuff like that sometimes, and you have but, to take it with a grain of salt. They're not trying to kill anybody. Right, right. Thank you. So anyways, I just want to say um, I really appreciate you taking the time. We also very much appreciate you allowing us to ask you questions, to question you on things, um, to kind of go back and forth, because this is the only way we're going to learn about each other. This is the only way we're going to learn that we have to take care of one another. 
We have to understand everyone else's viewpoints. You cannot shut people off. You cannot shut people out. If you care about someone who has an opposing view, ask them about it. You have to. It's all about perspective. Yeah. Yep. And you don't know what somebody else is going through. You know? Right. Never know. You never man. know. You never know what led him to that place. So kindness always overcomes. You know, at the right. end of the day. Look at what Gandhi achieved. Nonviolently. You know? He brought the British Empire to its knees. Anyway, we'll end it on that very serious note. <laughs> Everybody hit so uh, torpedocomics.com, order your uh, exclusive Detective Comics 1027 variant covers. Uh, what Tony Daniel, Terry Dodson, Simone Bianchi, Mark Brooks, Liebermeo, Frank Cho, Bill Sienkiewicz, Ben Oliver. All, all of them are exclusive to Torpedo. It's like a, it's like an all-star team we have. By the way, the guys... I don't know if you've seen all the covers, but they're sick. Yeah. Sick. So <laughs> made like a tubby Batman. I think he was trying to make fun of me. <laughs> he drew you. He drew you all buff in that last uh, detective that he did. No, that was Lee. Jim Lee. Oh, Jim Lee. Sorry. Yeah. All right, John. We really appreciate <laughs> right, it, man. Have a good one.